0: Thank you, Sam. Before we begin studying God's Word together, I want to make one clarification on our announcements. I think we were so focused on saying everything just right about meeting in the chapel next Sunday that we might not have uh, made everything clear for this evening. Uh, So tonight at 5.30, uh, adults are meeting in the chapel we are going to have a report from our Turkey mission team. We're super excited to share updates, pictures, stories from that report. Then if we have time, uh, we'll devote the rest of the time to a Sunday night theology on the topic of Islam. How do Christians, how should Christians think about the religion of Islam? Uh, the kids have adventure kids, all sorts of activities for them. The students have activities planned for them. After all of that, we're having a meal in the fellowship hall. So, Love to see you back tonight. I don't think you'll regret being with us tonight. Encourage you to be here if you're able. Okay. The pursuit of glory is a near universal human pursuit. Everybody wants glory. Even as a little boy, I remember having visions of glory as I daydreamed about some athletic achievement. Sometimes I was the batter in the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded, hitting the grand slam to win the World Series for the Cleveland Indians. Other times, I was on the mound, pitching the shutout game in game seven. Now, unfortunately, the imagine, imaginations of athletic ability in my own head never really equaled up to the actual athletic ability in real life. I never achieved much athletic glory, but there was one time about 35 years ago when I scored the game-winning goal for my team's soccer game. And I remember vaguely all the cheers from my teammates and from their families. I even remember one of my earliest memories is being in a grocery store with my mom when we ran into a family from my team and they cheered me on and congratulated me again for that incredible game-winning goal. I didn't have the heart to tell them that I scored it on accident I think I was daydreaming about baseball, and I kind of went like this, and the ball bounced off my knee and just landed in the goal. That was my one moment of glory by athletic achievement. so for most of us, or some of us, if you can't find glory on the ball field, you'll find glory or look for glory some other way. Some of us pursue glory through power. Whether it's world domination or being the big fish in a really small pond, we want glory by controlling somebody else. Some of us pursue glory through possessions, the newest car, the best phone, the largest house, the the finest clothes, the fattest bank account, the shiniest toys. Others pursue glory through beauty. Weight loss programs, 24-hour gyms and fitness centers, incredibly expensive skin care regimens, cosmetic products, tanning, exercising, dieting, plastic surgery. In our day, perhaps, the most well-tread path and the pursuit of glory is through recognition. And so... We post, and we post, and we post, and we post on social media and expand to all the newest versions, the newest platforms, whether it's Insta or TikTok or YouTube or whatever, and we post, and we post, and we continue to check and and hope that this post will be the one that really gets recognized. All of us, if we're honest, to one degree or another, are pursuing glory. It might surprise you that the Bible, my phone or my watch is playing a song, I think. Sorry. I don't know how that happened, but there we go. Anyways, um, it might surprise you. Uh, There's just like the soundtrack to my preaching all of a sudden. It was kind of cool, but we're not going to do that. Anyways, it might surprise you that the Bible does not tell us to stop pursuing glory. Maybe that's news to you. The world is all about pursuing glory. There was even a, a PlayStation commercial a few years ago that was inviting you to PlayStation's online platform with a tagline, Your Glory Awaits. The Bible doesn't tell you to stop pursuing glory. What the Bible does instead is redirects your pursuit of glory. The Bible says, here's how you pursue glory. There's only one path that leads to lasting glory, and it's beholding the glory of Jesus. If you're not already there, look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. If you were with us last week, we noticed Jesus explaining for the very first time in Matthew's gospel that that he wasn't really the Messiah that the disciples were looking for. He had come to die. And we don't know exactly what was going through the disciples' heads when they heard Jesus first predict his death but we can imagine perhaps that these guys were starting to think that Jesus was going to die because he was weak. A suffering Messiah is a weak Messiah, perhaps they thought. And Jesus cannot have his disciples think that. He is no weak Messiah. He needs his disciples, especially his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to know that he is not weak. And so he takes them up a mountain for a little field trip, and he shows them his glory. And in our passage this morning, we learn that the only path to lasting glory is beholding the glory of Jesus. With God's help, I want to show you three steps to beholding the glory of Jesus from what we see in our passage this morning. First of all, we need to see Jesus's glory. His glory must be seen. Secondly, his glory must be supreme. And then finally, Jesus's glory must be savored. That's our outline this morning as we walk through this text together. Let's begin with number one: Jesus' glory must be seen. Jesus' glory must be seen. Look with me at Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So this is about a week after what we studied last week in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus first predicted his death and resurrection. About a week later, now he's climbing this mountain with Peter, James, and John. We don't know why Jesus chooses those three, but we do know that these are kind of the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. These are the main three of Jesus' 12 disciples. So they climb up this mountain, and as they're up there, something unusual happens. Jesus' face begins to shine like the sun. Jesus's clothes begin to glow. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us his clothes were shining so white that they were whiter than any launderer on earth could launder them. I mean, all the bleach in all the world could not make his clothes shine any brighter. Jesus is shining in glory. Now, before we talk in depth about what's happening in this moment we need to understand that the disciples are seeing something unique. It's common in artwork about Jesus to depict Jesus glowing, right? You look at ancient artwork, a few hundred or so years old, all the pictures of Jesus, Jesus either has this kind of creepy halo thing on his head or his face is super white and shiny and almost translucent. It's pretty common in historical Christian art to depict Jesus as kind of this shiny being. But that's not how Jesus looked when he walked around on this earth. Have you ever seen an old Western It's really easy in an old Western to tell who the good guys and the bad guys are, right? The bad guys all wear black hats. The good guys all wear white hats. Jesus doesn't have a white hat on. It's not like Judas has a black hat so we can tell he's a bad guy. We can tell Jesus is a good guy. Now, Jesus looked like an ordinary human being. If you ran into Jesus in the flesh, you would be surprised at how ordinary he looked. Isaiah chapter 53 tells this to us quite clearly that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should behold him. He looked like an average Joe, he didn't normally appear glorious. So, as the Christmas carol says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. What's happening in this account is so unique because Jesus' glory was normally hidden. So, what's happening in this moment Here's how I don't want you to think about it. Don't think about this account like Jesus is putting on a mask and becoming someone that he isn't. Think of it more like Jesus taking off a veil and you're seeing who he always was and is. Jesus existed in eternity past in untold, incomparable, unparalleled glory. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This As we're told, ever-expanding universe with all of its billions upon billions of galaxies, each with billions upon billions of stars, is upheld by a word, by Jesus. He has existed for eternity in glory. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know something that Christians believe. We do not believe that Jesus began existing in Bethlehem. He existed prior to that. He is the creator. So, prior to His birth in Bethlehem, Jesus existed in eternal glory. So, what happened? Why is His glory so often veiled on the earth? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was in the form of God but he did not count the equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by, become, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When Jesus became a man, he didn't give up his deity not by a long shot. He is eternally the Son of God. What Jesus is doing when He becomes a man, what He's doing is willingly laying aside the public display of His glory so that you and I can be saved. So, Jesus in the incarnation, at His birth, by taking upon Himself human flesh, is choosing to veil, to cover over His glory so that we can be saved. Hopefully now you get a sense of what is exactly happening here. When Jesus is on this mountain and He appears in His glory, the disciples see something they have never seen before. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him feed thousands with some fish and some bread. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him heal the sick. They've heard his authoritative teaching, but they have not yet seen him in all his glory. All that changes in this account. He takes his disciples to the top of this mountain so that his glory may be seen. Maybe you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you look at Jesus and you don't see Him as glorious. He's a good teacher. He's a good person. But He's not a glorious God worthy of worship. Dear friend, if that's you here this morning, let me just challenge you that Jesus' glory exists whether you choose to recognize it or not. If you've never seen Mount Everest, is its glory still there? Do you have to see the glory of something for its glory to be real? C.S. Lewis once wrote that uh, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Dear brother, sister, friend, Jesus' glory is real and vivid and glorious and massive and unparalleled and eternal and incredible and beautiful, whether or not you admit it. I would challenge you, dear friend, look again. Look closer. Ask God to help you to see Jesus' glory. Because the only path to lasting glory is beholding the glory of God. Of Jesus. The first step to that is that Jesus' glory must be seen. The second step is that Jesus' glory must be supreme. Jesus' glory must be supreme. I once heard a story of a Hindu man who heard a Christian missionary explain the gospel and talk about Jesus. And this Hindu man said, yes, I agree with that. I want to worship Jesus too. And so the missionary got his information, promised to come by later on in the week and talk to him about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how he could get baptized to to make his decision public. So a few days pass, and the missionary goes to the Hindu man's house, and he goes into the living room And he notices this large mantle, and it's filled with images of Hindu gods. One god after another, just all on this mantle. And the missionary says to the Hindu man, wait a minute, I thought you wanted to worship Jesus. And he said, yes, I do want to worship Jesus. Don't you see? He's right there in between Shiva and Vishnu. I'm worshiping him too. I wonder how many of us are like that. Hindu man. We've seen something about Jesus that we like. We see see something about Him that's got some glory in it, but we don't yet see enough to abandon all the other things that we worship. He's just another God to put on the shelf beside all the other things that take our attention and our affections. If you're ever like that Hindu man, then you have something in common with the disciples in this story. The disciples, too, are seeing something of Jesus' glory and yet not yet fully getting it. Let me show you, beginning in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So, disciples, Peter, James, and John, they look, they see Jesus' glory, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah. Now, if we're not careful, we can begin to think that Moses and Elijah here in this account is something like a, a Stanley cameo in a Marvel movie, right? There's really no point. He's just kind of there. But there's actually a very important point that's being made by Moses and Elijah being on this mountain with Jesus. If you know the story of Moses and Elijah, you know that both men had significant mountaintop experiences, Moses first encountered God on Mount Horeb when he saw a bush burning but not being consumed and he heard the voice of God from that bush. Later on in Moses' life, he would encounter God once again on Mount Sinai and he would say on that mountain, God, show me your glory. Interesting, that's exactly what the disciples are seeing in this story. And God, the Father, says to Moses in that moment, Moses, if you see my face, you'll die. But here's what I'll do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to cover your eyes, and I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to let you see my back. You'll see a glimpse of my glory. Elijah had a similar mountaintop experience. If you remember the story of Elijah, you remember that Elijah had this epic showdown on Mount Carmel. It was the, 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 the challenge between the gods. Is it Baal or is it the God of the Bible? And Moses or Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel. He says, let's put altars on this mountain and let's not light them. And let's see whose God is able to light the sacrifice. So the prophets of Baal are yelling, shouting, screaming, cutting themselves all day long, trying to get their God, Baal, to recognize them and light the sacrifice. Halfway through, Elijah begins to pick on them. Maybe your God's taking a nap. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe you need to yell a little bit louder. In the end, the the god Baal does nothing to light the sacrifice. And then Elijah, when it's his turn, he does something incredible. He brings gallon upon gallon upon gallon of water and drenches the sacrifice. And then all he does is pray. And God, in fire and glory, instantly lights the sacrifice. So these two men had two mountaintop experiences, it's no accident that once again they're on a mountain, and once again they're encountering the glory of God. It's also significant that Moses and Elijah are the two greatest miracle workers in the Old Testament. These are two of the biggest names in the entire Old Testament Bible. It's also significant that Moses is the lawgiver and Elijah is the prophet. If you remember, Jesus often summarizes the scriptures as the law and the what? The prophets. So it's like as if all of the old covenant is encapsulated in these two men, Moses and Elijah, and they're there on the mountain with Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine that you're present. You're there, and you see Jesus in His glory and Moses and Elijah on each side. What do you do in that moment? What do you say? Let's look at what Peter did. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish... I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this isn't the main point of verse four, but I want to stop for just a moment to consider something important about life after death. I wonder if you ever wonder what's it going to be like? Am I going to be me? Will I keep my name, my personality? my experiences, my memory? And if I lose all those things, is it really me in the afterlife? Let me just encourage you, Christian, the fact that Moses is still Moses and Elijah is still Elijah suggests that we retain our identities in heaven. Unlike Hinduism and Buddhism and the New Age movement, you don't get extinguished into some nothingness. You're you, In fact, if I could put it this way, Christian, heaven is not the end of you. It's the beginning of the best possible version of you. It's the you that God always intended you to be. It's you without shame. It's you without sickness. It's you without fear. It's you without guilt. It's you without pain. It's you without sin. It's you without weakness. It's you without sadness. Do you see why the only... Path to lasting glory is beholding the glory of Jesus. Unfortunately, Peter doesn't quite see it yet. Maybe you're wondering what's Peter saying that's really so wrong. Peter says, It's good that we're here. If you want us to, let's let's build, let's build three tents. One for you, Jesus, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. One New Testament scholar says the problem here is that Peter wants to build three tents instead of one throne. Do you see the problem? The problem is that Peter sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus kind of almost as if they're equals. Both Mark and Luke's account of this story suggests that Peter makes this comment partly because he doesn't know what to say. Because he didn't know what to say, Peter said this. Which reminds me of the old proverb that says, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Dear brother, sister, friend, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing. Nothing. Much of the trouble we get ourselves into, as Chuck was praying for us earlier, is because we open our mouths when we should stay silent. Aren't you grateful for grace? Aren't you grateful, dear Christian, that for all the times you put your foot in your mouth and say or text or post something that you shouldn't have, that God is there to forgive and restore and correct? Well, that's exactly what he does for Peter, beginning in verse 5. Peter was still speaking, so he's, he's still kind of rambling on about this great idea to build tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The father speaks and reveals himself in this moment because he wants Peter and James and John and you and me to understand that Jesus's glory is supreme. Jesus is not one important person alongside other important people like Moses and Elijah. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the Son of God. So notice what the Father does. He does two things. First, He appears in a bright cloud. You see in verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them. I think the cloud overshadows Moses and Elijah so that all the disciples can see is Jesus. There's a lesson there for us, isn't there? How often do we get distracted by something that's less glorious than Jesus? God, in His grace and mercy, covers up those things and He says, Look at Jesus. If you remember your Old Testament, you know that God often appeared to his people in a cloud. It was a cloud that led the Israelites out of, out, of the, uh, out of Egypt on the Exodus. It was a cloud that protected them from Pharaoh's advancing armies by the Red Sea. It was a cloud that descended on Mount Sinai when Moses received the law. It was a cloud that descended upon both the temple and the tabernacle when they were completed. God shows his glory often in a cloud, and now he shows his glory. The cloud comes so that all you can see is Christ. And then a voice speaks. The voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The same voice that said, let there be light. The same voice that spoke to Moses from a burning bush. The same still small voice that spoke to Elijah after the incident at Mount Carmel. The same voice that spoke at Jesus' baptism that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is speaking now. And he says, listen, there's one person on this mountain you need to listen to. And it's not Moses and it's not Elijah. It's Jesus. Perhaps as Matthew's recording this account He's reminded of the words that Moses himself had prophesied 2,000 years earlier in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 when he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the great prophet that was prophesied by Moses. The one who not only speaks the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend. Is Jesus' glory supreme in your life? Is he just another glorious being alongside the shelf by, by all the other things in your life that you give glory to? Or is your, are your eyes fixed on him? Are your ears in tune to what he says? If we're going to behold Jesus' glory, it's the only path to lasting glory is to behold Jesus' glory. If we're going to do that, we need to see His glory and we need to recognize His glory is supreme. There's no one like Him. One final step we must take. Jesus' glory must be savored. Jesus' glory must be savored. It's one thing to say that the only path to lasting glory is to behold the glory of Jesus. It's another thing to actually behold Jesus's glory. I I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm tempted to think, man, this would be a lot easier if I could have just been up on that mountain with those disciples. Man, I mean, you talk about Jesus being glorious, but I've never seen it this would be so much easier if I could have just been there. Maybe you're asking, how am I supposed to behold Jesus' glory when He's physically absent? How do I behold His glory when I can't see Him with these eyes? I want to suggest to you two ways that you and I can behold Jesus' glory today. Two ways. These are incredibly important for us. Number one, Jesus, we can behold Jesus' glory as we savor the cross. As you look to the suffering and the cross of Jesus, you'll see glory there. I think that's the key lesson in verses 9 to 13. So the disciples are, are coming down from their mountaintop experience with Jesus, and Jesus offers them a way to remember His glory. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So here now for the second time, Jesus is predicting he's going to die and he's going to rise from the dead. And he says, guys, I know you just saw something incredible, but just put that in the back of your minds for a while. I want you instead to think about what's coming. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, the disciples still don't understand exactly what's going on. And so they try to change the subject. Have we ever done that before? It's like, I don't really know what's happening. Let's just talk about something else. And so one of the disciples, or maybe all of them together in verse 10, they ask him, well, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, we can fault the disciples for a lot of things. But one thing that we can't encourage them in is that they knew their Bibles. They knew that the prophet Malachi in chapters 3 and 4 prophesied that prior to the Messiah, Elijah would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And they say, wait a second, Jesus, you've been around for a while, and now we're just finally seeing Elijah. What's that all about? So Jesus answers them in verse 11. He said, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus is reminding the disciples of what he already told them in Matthew chapter 11, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. So Elijah, that prophecy was not that Elijah would come in the flesh to prepare the way of the Lord, but that someone like Elijah would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And that someone was John the Baptist. And Jesus says to his disciples, remember what they did to him? They put him to death. And then he reminds them again, the same thing is going to happen to me. And it's interesting, the text ends, the disciples understand that he's talking about John the Baptist, but they still don't understand about his death. They haven't gotten that part down yet. But Jesus repeats his upcoming death twice. He talks about it two times to remind them that the road to the mountain of glory travels through the valley of suffering. He wants them to remember the cross. So what's the practical lesson for us here, Christian? You and I cannot see Jesus transfigured on this mountain, but we can see Jesus' glory as we look to the cross. Do you want to see Jesus' glory, Christian? Can I show you a better place than even that mountain? Go to another mountain just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Go to Mount Calvary and look at Jesus there. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? To be glorified. What hour is he talking about? He's talking about his time on the cross. And Jesus says, This is where my glory is seen. Most clearly, it's at the cross. Do you want to see the justice of Jesus Look to the cross, and you'll see that not one single sin of his people goes unpunished. Do you want to see the mercy of Jesus? Look to the cross, and you'll see Jesus shedding blood for the sake of his people. Do you want to see the power of Jesus? Look to the cross, and there you'll see power. The the same power that could have called down a legion of angels is now keeping him on that cross to endure the wrath of the Father in our place. Do you want to see the kindness of Jesus? Look to the cross. Watch how he interacts with his mother. Watch how he forgives the soldiers. Watch how he cares for the thief on the cross beside him. Do you want to see the glory of Jesus? Look to the cross, friend. Can I just tell you, Christian, this is why at PBC we sing about the cross and preach about the cross and talk about the cross. This is why we celebrate the cross through baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is why we recommend books about the cross. This is why we strive to remind ourselves over and over and over again about the cross. This is also, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Every other religion is all about good advice. Christianity is good news. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me explain the good news. We call it the gospel really simply for you. It can be explained in four truths. It begins with a truth about a holy Creator God. He created this universe and everything in it. And because of that, He makes the rules. And then we move on to the truth about humanity. Because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned against God, every single one of us is now captive to the curse of sin and separated from God. But then... Thanks be to God, because of his great grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's the third truth, the truth truth about Jesus, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, and to rise from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. And you can respond to that truth by calling on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith today. You can turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and you can be saved. Dear friend, you can do that right in your seat today. You know, right where you're sitting, you can cry out to the Lord and say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you're holy. I know that Jesus died on a cross in my place. I know that he rose from the dead, and I'm giving my life to you today. Would you save me? You can pray something like that right in your seat today. If you do that today, dear friend, or you want to talk to someone more about that, would you head to the white flag after the service and talk to one of our pastors or talk to me after the service so we can talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus If you're in this room and you've done that, most of you have, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, let me just encourage you, we need to keep looking to the cross over and over and over again. Martin Luther said that the cross and the message of the gospel is like a hammer that you have to beat it into the heads of your people continually. Tim Keller said this, the gospel, the message of the cross is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way that we make all progress in the kingdom. If you want to see Jesus' glory, dear friend, look to the cross. But let me show you one other place where you can look and see the glory of Jesus. We behold Jesus' glory as we savor his word, we behold Jesus' glory in his word. 30 years after Peter saw Jesus transfigured on that mountain, he wrote about what he saw in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. You can turn there if you'd like, or it'll be on the screen. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his glory with our own eyes. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter saying, I saw his glory, I heard the voice of the Father, and yet... Look at verse 18, verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Peter's saying. We saw Jesus' glory on that mountain, but we have something better. We have have the word of God more fully confirmed. Maybe it would help if I put it this way. Daily access to God's glory in his word is a better gift than one-time access to God's glory on a mountain. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that what you have is a word more fully confirmed? If there were some technology that enabled you to see a recording of what happened on that mountain that day, would you prize that more than you prize your Bible? Do you believe that this, in these pages, you can behold the glory of Jesus? This is why as a church we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. This is why we include scripture reading throughout our services This is why we strive to sing songs that are saturated in Scripture. This is why we pray prayers that are loaded with Scripture in our services because God's glory is revealed in His Word. Let me ask you, dear Christian, do you act like you believe that? Do you live like you really believe that you can encounter the glory of Jesus as you read your Bible? I wonder if there's Christians in this room that are looking for some spiritual mountaintop experience for God to show something to you, something incredibly important to help you make some incredibly big decision, when all you need to do, dear Christian, is open up your Bible and read. I have a friend who reminded me the other day of someone who once said, If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. And if you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. Do you really believe that this is where we encounter the glory of God? So let me ask you, Christian, how is your Bible reading? How faithful are you to be in God's word? If you're struggling, who can you talk to today for help and accountability What resources could you use, maybe even something from our bookstall to help you grow in savoring God's word? The only path to lasting glory is beholding the glory of Jesus. Brother, sister, friend, I want to end with a final thought. Whatever glory you pursue will eventually transform you In the end, you will become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. If you pursue glory through achievements... Whatever, if you're constantly beholding the next great achievement, there's always going to be another trophy to earn, always another championship to win. And the more you behold what you haven't won yet, the more like a loser you'll feel. You'll become like what you behold. If you're pursuing glory through power. You'll be constantly beholding those who have more power than you do. And the more you behold what looks like power, the weaker and more afraid you'll feel. You'll become like what you behold. If you pursue glory through possessions, you'll be constantly beholding what it is that you don't have. And and the more you behold that thing you lack, the emptier you'll feel. You will become like what you behold. If you pursue glory through beauty, you'll be constantly beholding those who you think are more beautiful than you. And the longer you do that, the uglier you'll feel as you become what you behold. If you pursue glory through recognition, you'll be constantly beholding the people that recognize you. And the more you look at them, the more you'll become a slave to what they think of you. You will become what you behold. Do you see, brother, sister, friend, if you pursue glory by looking at anything in this world, it will eat you alive in the end. There is a better way. If you behold the glory of Jesus, you will become like him. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So church family, let's keep beholding Jesus. Let's keep looking to the cross. Let's keep looking to his word so that we might look more and more and more like him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. We thank you for this incredible account in your word of how Jesus is glorious. Forgive us for how easy it is for us to be like Peter, and to put your glory alongside the glory of another, and to not see the supremacy, the uniqueness of your glory. Forgive us for how easy it is to look for glory in some mountaintop experience instead of looking for glory in the simple places of the cross and your word. We pray as we leave here today, we would leave here beholding the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.